5 through Luke 24, 12. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus still on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Then Simon Peter heard it with the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of that fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Thank you. It's always nice to wrap up our 
quiet prayer time with the roar of a Harley. <laughs> <laughs> John chapter 21 that uh, Terry read this morning. Since the first Sunday of this year, we've been looking at John's gospel in relationship to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, answering the question, why is John so different? And uh, what is he adding to the story, uh, contributing his decades after the other gospels are already in circulation? And it's because John finds hidden meaning in the earlier Gospels that weren't brought out there because they were written closer to the time of Christ. And, and they deal with the real-time events of Jesus. And so sometimes Jesus said things and the disciples missed it. And, uh, and he says to them on several occasions, don't you understand yet? Aren't you getting it yet? And John years later, with this better understanding of the spiritual truth that Jesus was communicating, brings it out. So he, he writes like a spiritual commentary on the earlier Gospels. Here in the last chapter of John's Gospel, we find an interesting correlation between what he is writing and what has been written already. In Matthew and Mark, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is by the lakeside of Galilee, and he comes across these, these fishermen, and they call, he calls them to be his disciples. First of all, there's Andrew and Peter. And when Jesus sees them, they're casting their net into the lake to catch fish. I've seen people do this in Israel, standing not far from the shore, casting nets and trying to pull in fish. James and John are in their boat and they're mending their nets. So um, both of them are, uh, all four of them are preoccupied with their nets. In Luke's gospel, the story is uh, a little bit different. In fact, he tells of a different moment when Jesus is teaching by the shore and there's so many people pressing on him to hear him that um, he decides to climb into one of the two empty boats that are there. And we're told that the fishermen were not in them, that they were washing their nets. So we have um, these early disciples casting nets, mending nets, and washing their nets. Uh, the boat that Jesus steps into just happens to be Peter's. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how this went down. I like to think Peter came up and said, hey, what do you think you're doing? And uh, Jesus says, uh, do you mind just pushing off shore a little bit? These people are going to crush me. Uh, so Jesus teaches them from Peter's boat out in the water. And uh, when he's done teaching, he turns to Peter and says, let's go fishing. And Peter says, we have toiled all night and taken nothing. And I don't know if like, Jesus gives him a look or what, because he changes his tune. He says, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down my nets. <laughs> you go out into the deep, he lowers the nets, and suddenly they're so full of fish, he can't even get them into the boat. In fact, um, the nets are starting to break. So 
He calls to his partners on the shore, James and John, they row out and they throw in their nets and now both boats are so filled with fish they're starting to sink. <laughs> and Peter falls at Jesus' knees and says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, Lord. He's overwhelmed by what's happening and he sees there's much more to Jesus than I know. And he's saying, you're not gonna be, you're not gonna wanna be around a guy like me. And Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So the story of the disciples in the Synoptic Gospels <coughs> begins with fishermen and their nets. That's where the discipleship with Jesus starts. It's at the end of his story that John tells about the fishermen and the nets. He takes us back to the Sea of Galilee <clears throat> where the disciples have their last encounter with Jesus as John reports the story. Again, there's Peter, there's James and John, and they've <clears throat> fished all night and caught nothing. This is very similar uh, to that first encounter with, with Christ. Again, Jesus instructs them to do something that makes no sense. Try throwing your net on the right-hand side of the boat. <clears throat> uh, I don't know, sometimes people think that makes a difference. If you've ever been on a fishing boat and you know everyone on the port side is catching all the fish and the starboard side not getting any, you know, maybe you're gonna run over to the port side, but it really doesn't make that much difference. So what <clears throat> Jesus is asking is silly, and again, <clears throat> their nets fill up so they can't haul, their net fills up so they can't haul it into the boat. It's just too many fish. So another miracle. <clears throat> and what, what John does in putting this story at the end of his gospel is he brings the disciples full circle. They come back to where they began with Jesus. He, he takes a nice envelope around their whole experience of Christ. And John adds this footnote in verse 11. And though there were so many fish, the net was not torn. I wonder if that spoke a deeper meaning to John. You know, he's not one who just throws events away. He uses events to tell, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And he's not saying, now I've given to you a tradition, wash each other's feet every time you get together. Um, that would be a little bit awkward and uncomfortable if we started doing that here today. Um, but he's saying, I've given you an example of how to be a servant to others. And though I'm the guy in charge, I'm serving, that's how I want you to be with each other. So there are these events that the message speaks through, even though they're real life events. Like in, in the synoptics, we have parables. But in John's gospel, we have real life story with deeper meaning. And I wonder if John's looking at that net and saying, you know, it didn't tear. All those fish in it didn't tear. Now, were nets so flimsy that, you know, you could catch too many fish and the nets would break? You know, why this detail? I mean, it has the feel of an eyewitness, but someone who knows about these things. And I wonder if, if looking at this in retrospect, saying, 
We didn't know that a short time later, Peter's going to preach his first sermon, and 3,000 people are going to join our community. And in a short period of time, another 2,000 are going to be added. There's going to be 5,000 people. We've never had this many people following Jesus so ardently, so, so completely. Our net will be full. And I wonder if, if, if later on he's thinking, you know, but our net didn't break. We were able to handle it. Um, and we learned how to handle it with moments like this with Jesus. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Forgive me. I'm going to do something I hate, but here it is helpful to pay attention to grammar. Um, the verb tense of revealed is the active indicative. Now, we all remember wow. that from the eighth grade, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had to look it up. The indicative means that this was an actual event, not merely a possibility that, that this actually took place. The active indicates that Jesus was taking the initiative. It wasn't happening to him. It's not, it's not passive. He's acting, and he's acting with intent. So Jesus chooses to reveal himself. This is after he's risen, right? He chooses to reveal himself to his disciples that day. When we look at the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, it's kind of an interesting, eclectic group, and uh, rather selective. First, there are the women who came to the tomb to care for his corpse. Um, and as they're leaving the tomb, they run into him. He reveals himself to them. Then there's the disciples, and uh, they're in an, a room in Jerusalem with all the doors locked, and he just appears to them. Uh, and then he appears to individuals, and it seems that each time he has a specific purpose. There's Mary, the Magdalene from uh, uh, in the garden near the tomb, he appears to her, a very special, um, intimate encounter. Uh, there's Thomas, the doubter. He appears to him and challenges him to check out his scars and see that it really is him risen from the dead. Uh, there's also the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which this is depicted in this painting here, uh, who as he talks to them and explains how he has been revealed throughout the Hebrew scriptures, their hearts are burning within them. And then there's Peter. And that's pretty much it. Those are the people he chose to. Paul says there were 500 people who saw him after his resurrection. Uh, and he says, including Peter. I mean, that encounter with Peter must be so special because more than once uh, it's referred to as and Peter. Uh, but John tells us that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples here at the Sea of Galilee, but the story features one particular disciple. And again, that's Peter. Jesus definitely has Peter in his crosshairs here. 
and he chose Galilee for this conversation that he wanted to have with him. John opens this scene, and he tells us the seven disciples who are present, and begins with Simon Peter, who's there. And Simon Peter is also the first one to speak. I'm going fishing. And if we had time, that would be interesting to explore. Uh, is he saying, I'm tired of waiting around, nothing's happening, or uh, I figure Jesus doesn't want a loser like me. You know, he told me I would deny him, and I said I wouldn't, and then I did. Um, I think um, I'm just gonna give up and go back to what I know. This discipleship stuff, I'm always gonna be a failure at that, but fishing, I can do. I, and, you know, I just wonder, so we're not going to do that right now. But, uh, <laughs> there may be layers of meaning here. The first disciple to recognize that it was Jesus on the shore was the disciple whom Jesus loved, John's way of referring to himself. And he identified um, Jesus to Peter. So it was Simon Peter who jumped into the water. Uh, it wasn't the only time that he was the first one out of the boat. And it wasn't the only time he was the first one out of the boat and got all wet. Uh, he, he tried once before to walk on water. Uh, it's like he could not wait for the boat to get to shore. There's Jesus, and I'm sure at this point he doesn't know what that means for him, but he's eager to get to shore. And dragging this, this haul of fish behind the boat is going to slow them down. So he's to shore as quickly as possible. And when Jesus chose to speak to one particular disciple, it was Simon Peter. Now, you haven't been paying attention, and that's okay, because I haven't either. <laughs> but, but I know this because it's in my notes. We have seen Simon Peter, Simon Peter, you know, referred to, and Peter, and Simon Peter, and Simon Peter, okay? So his, his two names have been used uh, mostly together, except one instance where he's just Peter, his two names are being used together. His original name, and then the name Jesus gave him. It was not unusual at that time for people to have two names. Oftentimes, they have a Greek name and a Hebrew name uh, that may mean the same thing. In fact, Thomas, we're told, is called the twin. So he's Thomas, but he's also Didymus, meaning twin. <sighs> and John has carried us now this part using mostly Peter's two names. When Jesus takes Peter aside and sits down to have a conversation with him, he addresses him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, was Peter's full name when he first met Jesus. In fact, in chapter one, it's exactly how Jesus addressed Peter the first time. One of the two disciples of John the Baptist who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You're Simon. You're, 
This has defined you up until this moment of meeting Jesus. Simon, son of John. That everything about him you needed to know at that time. Jesus said, I'm changing your name. From now on, you are Peter the Rock. When, after all the years that they've been together, Jesus crucified, now resurrected, now up in the Galilee, you sit down having this conversation, when Jesus says, Simon, son of John, I think that's the first deep cut. I think that Peter feels rejection. I think that he, he, he feels, after all this time, I'm back to being who I was before. He's treating me like that person I was before. The question is, do you love me? And in the question, <clears throat> Jesus uses that famous Greek word, agape. And in John, agape refers to a love of deep devotion and affection. It's not a divine love. It's not a supernatural love. It's a human love. But it's a, a love of deep devotion and affection, especially in John's gospel. And it's as if Jesus were saying, Peter, do you love me as I love you? It's the word Jesus has used all through chapters 14, 15, and 16, or 13, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Peter, do you love me as I have loved you? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you as a friend. In other words, Peter does not use agape. He uses the word leo, which speaks of friendship. Philadelphia, uh, city of brotherly love. Uh, so, you, so you're a philanthropist, someone who loves to be generous. Love to meet one of those. Um, <laughs> yes, Lord, you know I love you as a friend. And, and I wonder if if he's thinking, well, I could say agape, but Jesus will come back and say, well, then why did you deny me? Where were you when everyone deserted me and you said you wouldn't? He's thinking, I haven't lived up to this. I can't really use this word Jesus is using. I can use a similar word. I mean, it, it speaks of my affection and commitment to him. I just can't go where he's going. So Jesus says, okay, feed my lambs. And he asks him the same question then. Simon, son of Jonah. So there's no progress yet, right? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter answers the same way. You know that I, I love you. And Jesus says, okay, tend my sheep. They're my sheep. I want you to care for them. And so he's, he's giving an instruction. He's giving him his his job description or responsibilities. But there's still a problem, isn't there? And the third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me as your friend? And he uses Peter's word, Phileo. Do you really love me as you say that you do? And that's the next deep cut. And Peter says, Lord, 
you know everything. You know that I can rise to this, that I love you as my friend. And Jesus says, okay, tend my sheep. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What's happening here? Why is Jesus doing this to Peter? Why is he putting him through this? And, and three times, you know, like, if he's asked that question once and he answers, you know, he can, phew, you know, got through that. But then Jesus comes back to it again. It's like, what? I didn't give the right answer. Um, you don't believe me. You're not satisfied. You ask again. And the tension builds. But well, Jesus' intention is not to condemn, condemn Peter, to shame him. It's very important to understand it. That's, that's not what Jesus does. That's what Sunday school teachers do. It's what preachers do. It's what happens <laughs> religious people do. But Jesus is not about condemning and shaming. He's about restoring and this is what he wants to do. It has to happen. Daniel Siegel is a clinical uh, professor of psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine. He's been involved in a lot of research. He's a brilliant man. Uh, he's especially interested in the neurobiology of interpersonal relationships. You've got to be in college to appreciate language like that. But uh, he's, a, he's just interested into how our bodies process relationships, the emotions of them, the challenges of them, and so on. He explains that every relationship, no matter how close, experiences a rupture or ruptures. <coughs> your best friend, your spouse, your parent, your child, no matter how close, every Relationship experiences ruptures. Things break. People disappoint. Misunderstandings occur. And he says that if the rupture isn't repaired, that a distance will grow between the couple, the friends, the family member. To hold a relationship together doesn't mean that there's never a rupture. There's going to be some kind of betrayal, uh, betrayal of confidence, um, wound inflicted. To hold a relationship together means that we have to follow the rupture with repair. And that's the beauty of it, that ruptured relationships can be repaired and made well and healthy. Siegel says, the key to repair is to embrace the humility of our humanity. This isn't easy. We have to allow ourselves to become vulnerable. Barb and I were watching a, a program last night and this um, girl is trying to apologize to this guy and she she says, you know, I really shouldn't have. And he says, no, no, what I did was entirely wrong. She got a big smile on her face and she said, you just passed the test. And he said, what test? And she said, 
Well, my mom has always told me that you found a good man if you found a man who can say, I was wrong. You have to be vulnerable. You have to take a risk. You have to open up the part of you that played a role in the rupture. And in opening it up, you might find out that there's something deep inside that was triggered that goes back a long way. And, and when you just lashed out, you didn't realize that you were lashing out from this deep sense of rejection that you've carried your whole life. And these kinds of things need to, become, need to come up so that there's better understanding of why each person has acted as they have. <clears throat> from the start, Jesus knew the work he could do with Peter. He named him Peter from the get-go. When he first met him, he saw him, and he saw this is, this is the rock I've been looking for. So that's what I'm going to, I'm going to call you. <clears throat> but, and, and even Peter got glimpses of what he could be, you know, these flashes of brilliance. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he said when Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And Jesus says, blessed are you, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But before Simon, son of Jonah, could become that person that Jesus saw, he had to get out of his own way. He had to fail. He had to fail. He had to cause this rupture. He had to fail like Moses failed his first go at it, like Paul later on would fail. Daniel Siegel says, the great news is that the inner sanctuary from which repair can be initiated is always available to be nurtured and can bring important reconnections in our relationships. We can always go inside and find what we need or nurture what we need to bring repair to ruptures in relationship. And that's what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's not, Jesus isn't doing it because he needs to know. In scripture, the fundamental rupture in, is our relationship with God. And the fundamental repair is reconciliation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He also says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that's what reconciliation is. It's making peace. Both rupture and reconciliation affect our physiology. It causes stress that releases hormones into our bloodstream that if they're not worked out somehow, begin to damage our health. A reconciled, repaired relationship brings the good chemistry 
the, the peptides and neurotransmitters and, and hormones of health and, and wholeness. And Jesus Christ is concerned with healing the whole person. And he, he doesn't ease into this with Peter, but he goes straight to the heart. And Peter was right when he said, Lord, you know all things. He was right when he said, you know I love you. Jesus knows that Peter loves him, but Peter must say it himself in order to be healed. And he must be challenged, so he says it from the deepest possible place. And Jesus opens the door for him and pushes him through it. <laughs> and this is how he was able to start out as a fisherman and end up a shepherd. We're coming to the good part. The first, the dark before the dawn. Not everyone in Israel enjoyed being out on the lake or going into the ocean. For them, these were places of chaos and danger and high risk. So, you know, the fisherman was a special person that he wasn't afraid of the lake. Even in the Gospels, the lake can represent futility. We toiled all night and caught nothing. We fished all night and caught nothing. Nada. Nothing. Futility. Emptiness. And more than once, the disciples were out on the lake when a storm hit them so that they could not make any headway in the storm. They were going nowhere. Futility. Also, they had been fishing at night, and in John's Gospel, night and darkness have negative connotations. Night is a time that means inability to work. He says in John chapter 9, we must work while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Night is a time when people trip and stumble and fall. And Jesus says, but those who walk in the light, John chapter 11, can see where they're going. Night and darkness represent ignorance of not being able to see what's right there. And Jesus draws that out in John chapter 12. And crimes are hidden by the cover of night in John chapter 3. And John remembers that that last supper together, when Jesus told Judas, Go and do what you need to do, go quickly. That when John went out that door, or pardon me, Judas went out that door, John said, and it was night. Such a dark moment when Judas went to hand Jesus over to those who wanted to kill him. And it was night. Life gets difficult, it gets complicated, it can be painful and overwhelming, it darkens, uh, the night comes, and temptation can come fast and forcefully, and we're saying, I don't know the man, before we realize what's coming out of our mouth. We fall and perhaps we wonder, am I really cut out for this? Belief has, has become difficult for me, living it even more difficult. Can I really do this? And then what? 
And then, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Daybreak. This is why Easter has always been such a big deal for Christianity. Every sunrise becomes a resurrection. And we share this resurrection with Jesus, who said, because I live, you will live also. We're no longer stumbling in futility, no longer distant from God. You know, the sunrise over the Sea of Galilee can be rather spectacular. Uh, on the eastern side of the sea, and generally our hotel is on the western side, on the eastern side of the sea there are those mountains of of Jordan and, and Syria, and so the sun comes over the mountain, and if you're standing by the water, typically in the morning uh, that early, the ripples are singing on the shore, and then the light breaks and comes down on you first, and then approaches the water as a shadow recedes, and uh, course, anywhere if there are clouds, there's beauty. Jesus standing on the shore, he's on the, the western side of the shore, as day is breaking, and he lights up before anything else. The sun hits him before it hits the water, and he is hope. Everything with, a, with daybreak comes back to life. And here's Jesus, he is risen. And with him, Peter can rise again himself. Resurrection is restoration and reconciliation. With him, the rupture between us and God is repaired. And all you have to do is accept it, but be with it and be in it and realize you're being made whole. That Jesus chose this place and this time to have this conversation with you and to, to get inside of you. And you know what? If, if he says, do you love me? And you go to that deepest place in you and you come back with an honest answer and you say, no, Jesus, I do not love you like you love me. I do not even love you like a good friend. But I want to. That's good enough for him. And with that kind of honesty, you are reconciled already. And now he's going to make you whole. You have risen again into light, into love, into hope everlasting. Would you stand with me, May we, this week, know the presence of the Jesus who lives in truth be drawn to him, be interrogated by him, 
and come up with all the right answers, which are nothing more or less than the true answers. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into everlasting life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.